You're listening to Clock Shelves Entertainment, the only podcast network bringing you great times. Hey everyone, this is Future Paul coming at you. This episode that you're about to listen to was recorded quite some time ago. Do apologize for the delay, but I'm just letting you know that this episode is brought to you with limited interruptions today, brought to you by content club that is patreon.com slash clock shelves um and our new podcast series buffy verse and converse that's a show where myself and several frequent clock shelves collaborators get together to talk about buffy the vampire slayer the television series 25 years later that's right it's been 25 years since buffy the vampire slayer rolled into sunnydale and into our geeky hearts and we are going episode by episode uh going over the episode or i'm sorry going over the series and um the great thing about it is some people have watched the series some people haven't watched the series so we're We're getting all sorts of viewpoints from various ages, various levels of fandom, and everything in between. So make sure you go check that out. Available now. The first several episodes are available now. uninterrupted over at Content Club, coming to your favorite podcast feed anywhere you get podcasts. But for now, enjoy this episode brought to you with limited interruptions from Buffyverse and Converse on Content Club. Hey guys, there was a bit of an audio glitch at the beginning of this episode. So uh, once in a great while for the first two three-ish minutes. We do apologize. Uh, There was a technical issue that we couldn't really get past. Um, The song that we're talking about is Heroes by David Bowie. Um, You'll very quickly be able to figure out the rest of everything that we talk about, but I just wanted to let you all know that that is the song because that particular spot at least got cut out. So Heroes by David Bowie. And now without further ado, let's continue on with the rest of the episode. This is a Clock Shelves Podcast Network production. Chat about this and that. Oh, yes, no stress. We keep coming back. JPC and all his friends from far and near. Maybe make you cry, maybe bring you some cheer. So many people with so much to say from pop culture to travel, weird news to QA. No topic is too small here on our show, Paul and All. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Paul and All. As always, I am your host, Paul Casey, and I am once again joined by the internationally renowned photographer. Go ahead and reintroduce yourself, sir. Hello again, everyone. Uh, my name's Mike Gilman. Continue talking about, uh, well, really, we did the 50 uh, greatest songs of all time per Rolling Stone's uh, newest list. But uh, really, it's 500. But of course, we don't want to sit and talk 500 songs as much as we probably would in our free time. So Surprises in there. Yes. So, songs by David Bowen. But I, I, I feel like fine that it's on here. Uh, I remember it. 
I remember a lot of Bowie songs. I don't exactly remember this one by name. I was going to say the same thing. Like, I, I mean, I'm not, I definitely enjoy his, his stuff. And actually at my work a few weeks back, there was the one guy, he had no idea who date Cause he just kept saying, he's like, I know what a David Bowie knife is. Oh my gosh. And we're like, no, no, that, no. that's not it. <laughs> yeah. And he's just like, and then of course, when he gets really agitated, because myself, one of the other uh, guys at work and one of the customers who had something David Bowie tattooed on her, we were all kind of like, how do you not know who he is? Whatever. And so when he gets really agitated and feels like everyone's ganging up on him, he just like kind of lashes out and he's just like, does he pay my bills? Then I don't need to know who he is. You know, like he, yeah, that's, that's his. uh, Wow. If it's something he cares about, he's super passionate about it. But if it's something where he's just like, I don't know, and and don't don't try to make yeah. me feel bad that I don't know, all of a sudden it's I don't need to care because they don't pay my bills. Wow, that's that that's fair. I mean, to be fair, in the, in the opposite <laughs> direction, he could he could uh, start a David Bowie cover fan and and uh, cover band, maybe uh, play at the local bars, make some money, maybe care <laughs> a little more. I don't know. Uh, but all of that being said, like you said, I, I do know, you know, some songs and maybe if I heard the song, I'd probably know it, but by name, I don't know this one. Same, same. Um, the little description here, cause for anybody who may have missed it, please go back and listen to the previous, uh, ones where Mike and I talked about this, but we've been reading the little, uh, descriptions as put out by Rolling Stone, which oftentimes we found are just as enchanting as the actual songs when we've known them. Oh, they were fantastic. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I love some of the descriptions. It's so colorful, and they make the, the song sound so much better in some cases than what it is. So the one for this is, after a coke-fried spell in Los Angeles, oh my Bowie was detoxing yes. in Berlin when he spied two lovers having a rendezvous by the Berlin Wall. Said Bowie, quote, I thought, of all the places to meet in Berlin, why pick a bench underneath a guard turret on the wall? Imagining the story behind their affair, Bowie wrote his most compassionate song ever. The The song builds for six minutes with Bowie setting his ragged, impassioned croon over a throbbing groove consisting of Eno, Eno's, humming synths, Robert Fripp's guitar, and producer Tony Visconti banging on a metal ashtray that was lying around in the studio. Bowie wails with crazed soul about two doomed lovers finding a moment of redemption together just for one day. Wow, that is so Stefan. I love it. I love it. A throbbing beat. Wow. Fantastic. Well, just the oh, I, just, I mean, I loved your reaction to the first few words after a coke fried spell in Los Angeles. Oh man, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, moving on, number 22, Be My Baby by the Ronettes. Oh, that's a great song. That's a great song. I, I, I remember seeing that on a movie or hearing that on a movie. Um, yeah, I've, I've always been a fan. Sure, I'll, I'll go along with that. But the, but, I, 
the question like we were asking last time, is it the 22nd yeah. greatest song of all time though? That's 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 what I was going to comment on next. Um no. No, I don't <laughs> I don't think so. No. Uh, Phil Spector rehearsed this song with Ronnie Bennett, the only Ronette to sing on it, for weeks, but that didn't stop him from doing 42 takes before he was satisfied. Aided by a full orchestra, as well as a young Cher who sang backup vocals, Spector created a lush, echo-laden sound that was the Rosetta Stone for studio pioneers such as The Beatles and Brian Wilson, who calls this his favorite song. Quote, the things Phil was doing were crazy and exhausting, said Larry Levine, Spectre's engineer. But that's not the sign of a nut. That's genius. That Those last two sentences were the end of that quote. Nice. Nice. It's unfortunate that, you know, all that stuff later came out about Phil Spector, because I feel like it kind of taints the musical accomplishments that he had. Yeah, I agree. I, I think like we talked about in the le- last episode, it, it's sometimes hard to separate the the art from the artist. Um, I feel, you know, in this case, yeah, that's 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 one of those cases. It's kind of hard to separate, you know, what 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 he's done with with the yeah. music, you know. Number twenty one, "Strange Fruit" by Billie Holiday. I do not know that song. I'm certainly familiar with Billie Holiday, but I don't I actually know. do know this song, ah. believe it or not. <laughs> so what is your take, good sir? So I this is one of those songs, and maybe I'm a little biased only because it was featured in a show that I like, sung by an actress that I like, and what have you. Um, it was actually as a cover uh, on Sons of Anarchy, of oh, all okay. things, believe it or not. Katie Seagal actually did a cover oh. of it for the Sons, of, for one of the soundtracks for Sons of Anarchy. Um, and this, I mean, I'm sure it'll talk about it in the song. And it's um, the, the opening of the song is uh, Southern trees bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves and at the root. And basically it's the concept of the fact that it's not just fruit, that hangs from the trees in the South. If you catch the draw, I do. I do. And that's, that's basically what this, what the song is. And it's obviously the, the content of the lyrics. Yeah. Is very like horrifying, but it's actually a really like beautiful song. If that makes sense. Wow. So musically, not lyrically, I guess you're saying. Yes. Like obviously what they're talking about is terrible. In oh, yeah. the, you know what I mean? In the context of, wow, this is so horrendous that, that people did this and in some cases still do this oh, to sure. other human beings, you know, but yeah. as like, just like a hauntingly beautiful song, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, what, what year was this, uh, written? Uh, re- uh, not released 1939. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. Uh, one of Pop's first protest songs is also one of its most profoundly disturbing. Written by a Jewish schoolteacher in the Bronx, its lyric evoke, lyrics evoke the horrors of a lynching. Uh, and then some of the, it says some of the lyrics, Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Um, 
and then it continues. And it's languid uh, melody conjures the unsettling quiet of a Southern backwoods night. The song was so controversial in the late thirties that holiday, a Columbia records artist had to find another label to release it. An indie owned by Billy Crystal's uncle. Strange fruit is still relevant because black people are still being lynched. Andra day who sang it in the United States versus Billy holiday told Rolling Stone. It's not just a Southern breeze. We're seeing that everywhere. Wow. Yeah, and and that's 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 crazy because normally when you think of any songs from the 30s, 40s, or even 50s, it's generally not associated with uh, something that unless I've missed something. I mean, from what I've heard, what you know, what what, what I grew up with and 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 listening to, um, it's normally not associated with violence or 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 racism or, or bigotry or anything like that. So. Yeah, it's 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 always um it's always crazy to hear that. And this is one of those times, Mike, where now we're we're at song number 20 and this is one of those ones kind of like we had last time where we go from some, you know, pretty uh, popular or or uh, you know, definitely hey, you know, if you're if you're a, you know, fan of like musical history, check these out sort of ones sure. like we just had. Sure. And then we go to this. Okay. <laughs> song number 20. The twenty great, 20th greatest song of all time. Is it Tutti Fruity again? <laughs> Yo, that's, that blew your mind it last did, time, man. didn't it? It did. It, did. <laughs> it may have put that on here twice. I don't know. <laughs> no, it is Dancing on My Own by Robin from 2010. What? I have no idea what that song is. Uh, Swedish disco queen Robin, that's R-O-B-Y-N for those not in the know, captured all the agony and ecstasy of twirling alone in a corner of the dance floor, spinning around in circles and losing yourself in the beat for a moment of solitary triumph. Quote, I think dancing on my own is totally from me just being in clubs and going out and dancing a lot and seeing people and thinking, what are they doing here? She said later. They're dancing just like you. Like, hmm. what, what, what kind of question is that? What are they doing here? <laughs> right. Were you looking in a mirror? I don't know. Like, no, I, I very interesting concept. Um, and, and one I'm sure a lot can relate to, but I, I don't think I've heard it. It's one of those maybe, maybe if uh, I, I heard the song, I would recognize it, but it's not ringing any bells. How about you? Uh, I'm pretty sure I know it. I'm sure if you heard it, you would know it. Probably. Hey there, folks. Just taking another break to remind you to check out our social media pages. We're trying to grow those, and we're wondering what you want to see more from us. Uh, you can let us know your feedback on our shows. You can let us know uh, feedback on just about anything really over on our social medias. You can make requests for various guests that you want to maybe return to certain shows, or you can give us topics. 
Um, you can check out all of that, and you can even find pretty much across the various platforms the people that have been on uh, our shows because we follow them and are followed by them pretty much everywhere. Uh, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, we are Clock Shelves. Of course, that's C-L-O-C-K-S-H-E-L-V-E-S. We are trying to grow our social media presence, as I said. So um, in addition to us trying to post as often as we uh, post new content for you, uh, we're also trying to make everyone else aware of our social media. So make sure you go give us a follow, maybe even uh, share us sometimes, you know, when we post new stuff. It's at Clock Shelves, that's C-L-O-C-K-S-H-E-L-V-E-S on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, and it did... My, I hate when the page reloads because there was a little bit more to that. Uh, uh, let's see. Hold on one second. Sure. But Oh, well, actually, I, sh- I want to ask you while I'm waiting for this to load. Did you go and listen to any like do, any of the songs that we had talked about last time? I did. I, I listened to a few of them. I, I, I don't remember uh, which ones they were because it was like immediately after we had uh we had well, one of them uh, i sent you i believe the the talk i believe it was the talking head song the well, same as it ever was i think yes. that's the one i sent you yeah, yeah 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 that was a great song um, <laughs> and then there, there was another one that it, it wasn't um it was written in another country and and i remember we 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 had joked about it and you sang a little bit of it um oh um Gasolina. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I was I wasn't wrong though, right? That's how it no, goes. No, that's exactly how it goes. That's exactly <laughs> how it goes. Um. So about this Robin song, it says uh, written with Stockholm producer Patrick Berger, B E R G E R. Mm. Uh, the song made Robin an iconic cult hero. Uh. But it also became the template for a whole generation of young songwriters from Taylor Swift to Lord looking for the ideal glitter and sobs. That's hyphenated three words, glitter and sobs cocktail. This song, well, this is a quote. This song to me is perfect. Lord wrote joyous even when a heart is breaking. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I have to give that a listen. All right, number 19. We're into we're to the top 20 finally. Here we go. Number 19. Imagine by John Lennon. I do love that song. Um Yeah, that's a great song. Okay, sure. Lyrically, yeah. I I I can see how it would make the top 20. Yes. Because it's arguably his most popular solo song. Right. You know, Um, and I say this and I've talked about it many times when it comes to the Beatles. I am not I I, and maybe I'm biased because, you know, named after him, whatever. I do like Paul McCartney's stuff better than John Lennon's stuff. Most people will say I'm incorrect because a lot of people feel that John was the more deep thinker and things like that. I also think I'm not going to lie and people can say what they want. I think because of the fact that he passed away so early 
Yeah. You know, that it's sort of that thing that we do with people. We, we yeah. kind of build them up a little bit. And I'm not saying he didn't deserve it. Like he did a lot sure. in the, the, the short time that he was here, you right. know, right. but I think we kind of build up people sometimes a little bit afterwards. Like, Oh, he was taken before. Imagine what else he could have done. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's, it's all a, yeah, we, we, we just romanticize, you know, yes. the, the, the young, young deaths of, of actors, actresses and musicians. So, yeah. But that being said, with regards to John Lennon's songs, this is probably one of his best. Yeah. It may not even be my, I mean, I'm sure if I sat and thought about it, I'd probably have a different one. Yeah. That would be like my personal favorite, but just for what this song is in pop culture and, you know, like you said, lyrically, especially, you know what I mean? Things like that. And even for what it was for him coming out of the Beatles at that exact time, you know, the, the, I think it was the first song, uh, maybe, uh, Christmas, you know, the Christmas song, I think, I don't know. I can, I can never remember if that one officially or unofficially has Paul McCartney as a co-writer because even they would just do that, you know, even if, if, even if it was one of them just writing it, but I believe imagine was like the first song where he was just like, no, this is me. Not yeah. me and Paul or anything like that. This is me. This is what I have to offer. Right. And that was a big step for any of them to say, this is who I am outside of this group. Oh, sure. Yeah, I would, I would agree 100%. Uh, so the little description, quote, it's not like he thought, oh, this can be an anthem. Yoko Ono recalled years later of this song's creation in March of 1971. Imagine was, quote, just what John believed, that we are all one country, one world, one people. He wanted to get that idea out, unquote. Lennon admitted that Imagine was, quote, virtually the communist manifesto, unquote. But the element, uh, elementary beauty of this melody, the warm composure in his voice, and the poetic touch of co-producer Phil Spector who bathed Lennon's performance in gentle strings and summer breeze echo, emphasized the song's fundamental humanity. Lennon knew he had written something special. In one of his last interviews, he declared, imagine to be as good as anything he had written with the Beatles. Wow. I can't argue that, actually. For sure. For sure. Uh, Number 18. Here's my boy again. He's back. Purple Rain by Prince and the Revolution. Oh, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. I, I do love this song. And it's so funny. Every every time I hear a cover of well, not every time, but most times when I hear a cover of it, um, it's it's followed by an outrageous guitar solo at the end. Uh, and it's 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 just fantastic. Like I, I love this song for so many reasons. I, for those who don't know, go back, listen to the first one. I I talked about Prince a little bit more probably than I should have. Um, but, uh, I, I mean, I I love this song. And I, as I said in the, in the previous one, I have sort of a love, hate, weird thing with Prince and versus his music and so on and so forth. This song 
all I can think about, and I knew this song before, and I've heard this song plenty of times afterwards, and I'll, you know, this is in my, my car jams playlist and whatever, so I'll definitely drive around listening to this song, whatever, but for whatever reason, all I could think of is when he did the Super Bowl halftime show some years back, and this was like one of the, I don't remember if it was near the middle or right near the end, yeah. but obviously, you know, Purple was his sort of calling card and it they did all the lights and everything. And then he was playing this and it started to actually rain at the field. Not they made it rain because it was the song like it was actually raining as he was doing the song. And with the purple lights and everything, it was just so amazing. Yeah, that's that's just insane totally insane uh the little blurb says on the 1999 tour in 1983 prince found himself sharing arenas with bob seeger and he challenged himself to write a seeger like ballad but instead of night moves he channeled a heart-rendering meditation of love trust god and purple rain quote it was so different said the uh revolution's bobby z it was almost country. It was almost rock. It was almost gospel, unquote. The version of the song on the Purple Rain soundtrack is actually a live recording from 1983 that Prince later polished into a transcendent anthem worthy, worthy of a movie title. After the film came out, the song and its jaw-dropping guitar solo got only bigger. The performance on the 1985 home video Prince and the Revolution Live stretches to almost 19 minutes and it is stunning. Wow, 19 minutes. That's insane. And I don't know if I've, I mean, I could tell you I haven't seen that movie in years, like years. But the one thing that I remember, I don't know if I've ever told this story like to any person, let alone on, on a podcast. But the one thing that I remember really about that that movie, uh, when I was a kid, my f- so the he was my childhood best friend. He lived in the the same like you know neighborhood apartment yes. complex sort of thing as me, and um, he and I we were damn near like we lived pretty much lived at each other's houses, things like that, and whatever. And um, he introduced me to a lot of stuff. He's actually the person who introduced me to back to the future and, and things like that. And I really, what he wanted to show me was, look, we could watch this movie and this girl gets naked, (laughs) but, and it's not, and it's okay because it's part of the movie. But like, he was like, Oh, let's just basically, let's just rewatch this scene. And then he, you know, the whole, the, the, the lake and the, but that's not the, you know, he makes her get, is, is, is that, that's the, that's the right movie, right? Where he says like, oh, they say that if you, if you go swimming in the lake, whatever, and then she gets naked and goes into the lake and then he's just like, but that's not the right lake. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> I don't, I, you know, I, it sounds, it sounds like a, a movie that Prince will be in, but, um, I've saw bits and pieces of it. I'm actually not seen it all in its entirety. We'll see. There you go. Maybe we'll have to do that one of these days. Sit down and watch. Yeah, it's just like uh, yeah. Sit down and watch it, and and then we can like uh, do do a commentary or or you know talk a little bit about it. Like maybe some cinema cinematography 
you know, just some funny scenes, just Prince in general. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh, that would be. Oh, we have that would be great. We'll have to do that one of these yeah, days for sure, dude. I think it'd be awesome. Uh, just two two guys just sitting outfit, there, basically like, like Mystery Science Theater, but with with Purple Rain. Oh my god! Yes, yes. Uh, all right. So the next song, number seventeen. Now I think this song should be closer to number one i'm not saying number one but closer okay. to number one than to number 20 bohemian rhapsody by queen oh yeah number yeah. 17 uh, agreed agreed um you know with that song and they, they they may mention it uh in there but i, I think with all the voices that, that they did uh there, there was so many overdubbed tracks and and recordings and recording voices over the others like uh, they almost broke the tape, if I remember correctly, and and they almost uh, d- didn't release it. Uh, it almost didn't get released because of uh, all the overdubbing and the and the broken tape or something. I don't know. That, that that's something worth looking up if you're a huge fan of the song. I don't I don't know the exact story, but uh, I always thought it was an interesting point. Well, I know that the, I've always heard that that like, I mean. Obviously, they make headphones and earbuds and all of that different now. Yeah. But back in the day, when you would go and you know get the do the big headphones that you put over your ears yeah. and whatever, um, in the you know your local Kmart or Walmart or what have you, and you know you'd have to they they would have little like stands where you could actually try them out, like the headphones. Yeah, you know, and you could put whatever. They would say that this song is the best song to test out headphones because it goes the entire range from like lowest note to highest note that you can like do, or that you normally would hear in any other song or something like that. Wow. That and, and be, I think because it also goes, it has everything from, you know, they, like all of that in both like sides, like, you know, like yeah. certain things you only hear in the left, certain things you only yep. hear in the right and what have you. Oh Yeah. 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 No, that makes sense. That makes sense. All right. So here, we're going to hear how they sum up this song. <laughs> All right. The 1970s rock's most grandiose decade never got more grandiose than here. Bohemian Rhapsody contains a reported 180 vocal parts and spans rock, opera, heavy metal, and pop all in six minutes. But for as elegant as it sounds, recording it was a literal mess. Freddie Mercury taped scraps of paper containing his own bizarre musical notations to his piano and simply started pounding out chords for his bandmates to follow. Somehow he pieced it all together beautifully, singing about killing a man, possibly a metaphor for obliterating the heterosexual image of himself, and Commedia dell'arte, maybe, characters like Scaramouche. Uh, recording technology was so taxed by the song that some tapes became virtually transparent from so many overdubs, but Queen had created something that embodied the absurd tragedy and humor of human existence. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. And then, once again, we go from that song. Now, some might argue, okay, 
that Bohemian Rhapsody is, even if they're not necessarily a big Queen fan or whatever, some yeah. might say just for what that song is and all those things we just said and <laughs> they just said whatever, that it may be one of, if not the greatest song of all time, just because of everything that went into it and whatnot, right? For sure. Tons of effort. Yes. Yes. That's number 17. Number 16, Crazy in Love by Beyonce and Jay-Z. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am a Jay-Z fan. Uh, I Beyonce is, is certainly talented. I'm not as big a fan of her, but I would not put that above uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, <laughs> honestly. I, I, but it's Queen B or Bay or whatever they call her, right? <laughs> I, and it's 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 so apples and oranges. Like I I I don't want to not give it its its dude. Dip- it's apples and bicycles, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, personally, yes, there's, there's no way I would, I would put that above Bohemian Rhapsody <laughs> or, or plenty of others previously on this list. Producer Rich Harrison had trouble convincing friends and peers that the beat to Crazy in Love had much potential. So he added a five alarm horn blast taken from 70s solsters, the Chai Lights, are you my woman? Tell me so. As well as his own instrumental flourishes and kept it at the ready for the right moment and the right artist. Quote, until I got the call from B, he later said, uh, as the single that inaugurated Beyonce's solo career, the song empathetically announced her arrival as the era's dominant pop power. Jay-Z's killer verse was added at the last minute. Bay and Jay had just started dating at the time, and the song's lyrics and head-over-heels delivery reflected what she described as, quote, the first step of a relationship right before you let go, unquote. Wow. Okay. I remember when this song came out, 2003, um, and I remember it being a big thing and all this stuff, but one of the things that I remember even more and this is just one of those random, like, no one else has had this experience but me. So working in the supermarket for all those years, you start, you, you, you get used to the fact that it's the same song. Really, any retail place. You get used to the fact that it's the same, like, 20, 30 yeah. songs yeah. every day. Sometimes in a different order. Sometimes in the same order. But it's always going to be the same songs. Right. Well, within the last few years of me being there, I'd say the last year, year and a half, um... I was starting to get very frustrated with a lot of things. And so there were certain times I just couldn't keep my mouth shut about some things anymore. And it was to the point where when I was working there, when I first started, just, this is just a quick side story. I won't take too long. I promise. Uh, But when I first started there, I was the night guy and you know, whatever. And then as I basically everyone else slowly left and I started taking on more responsibility. I got to be the morning guy. I was there five, you know, five to like one o'clock every day, 5 a.m. to 1 p.m., get out, whatever. Well, when I started kind of talking back and questioning certain things, whatever, the boss used the schedule as the punishment. Uh So much so that I was suddenly back to being the night guy again, or because I wasn't driving, he would make it so that it was very difficult where I either had to be there an hour early 
or I could, you know, like catching a bus or getting an Uber or whatever, I could be there like an hour early or end up there like five minutes late. And if I was five minutes late, it wasn't just a thing of like, oh, he's five minutes late, whatever. But if I was an hour early, he wouldn't let me punch in early. So, and to the point where even the store manager at one point said to me, oh, you know, you're being punished. That's why you're here. And I'm just like, oh, all right. So we're just acknowledging that this happens. Great. And I started to hear the music at night. And a lot of it was a lot of the same songs that you would hear in the morning because then they would repeat at night, whatever. But one time I was just there doing something. And all of a sudden this song comes on. Now to go from like Paul McCartney's Jet to like, you know, all these other things, some of these other songs that we talked about, like uh, uh, what was the one from from the last time? Even songs like Tutti Fruity or whatever other ones you buy, even like, you know, uh, The Fray, How to Save a Life, like because they do have some quote unquote newer songs, even though that song's about 10, 15 years old at this point. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what I mean? They have stuff like that. And then all of a sudden to just Crazy in Love by Beyonce and Jay-Z is just sort of mixed in there. And I was like, What? Like, <laughs> like that was just super strange to me. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, moving on to number 15. I want to hold your hand by the Beatles. And I have to say me personally, I mean, I, I, I think this song is fantastic for them. And I mean, I could get into the whole history of that, whatever. I don't think that this song should be higher on a list than Bohemian Rhapsody. I completely agree. I, I think it's a sweet little song. Like it's 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 fun to hear. Uh, it's a great sing along song, but I it does not belong above Bohemian Rhapsody. I don't know if they're going to talk about it here in in this little uh, the little blurb thing, but I do I- know. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. No, I haven't. Uh, I've heard the book might be better. I have not read the book, I will be honest. But it's actually a pretty good movie, like, for for what it, I say for what it is. Um, but at one point in the in the, the story, uh, so it's Michael Sarah and Kat Dennings are the main two characters. Not to give too much away, but uh, Michael Sarah is upset because he's having sort of problems with his ex-girlfriend and he kind of has developed feelings for Kat Dennings and whatever. And he's in a band with two guys. They are, the two guys are gay. Um, it kind of plays a point in the movie, so whatever. But for this, it kind of makes sense as well because the one, they're just kind of sitting there talking with him at one point and the one grabs his hand, grabs Michael Sarah's hand and just kind of like holds it kind of almost like romantically, whatever. And he just says... It's the Beatles, man. And he's like, what? And he said, the Beatles, the number one song, the, the, you know, the first number one they ever had, I want to hold your hand. And he's like, even they knew back then, it wasn't about sex. It wasn't about, you know, like money. It wasn't about that. It's at the end of the day, you just want someone whose hand you want to hold, you know? And that's oh, yeah. kind of how he, the his friend in the movie was trying to be like, basically, which of these two girls do you really want? You know, like that's kind of what the, the whole point of that scene was. And then, of course, a bunch of other people are walking by them. And some of them are because they're in New York City. So some of them are like, yeah, because they see two guys holding hands. So some of them are like, yeah, pro gayness. And then others are like, ew, gayness. You know? <laughs> 
And it, it does, yeah. it kind of makes light, I guess, at the end of this very, you know, the very poignant moment between these two friends. But I always thought that was a really interesting way of looking at it. And of course, one could say, you know, and obviously in their personal lives, yeah, that's what they wanted was, you know, to, to get all the girls and, and, you know, get money and whatever. But from a songwriting perspective, and obviously they would get into other deeper stuff much later, as we kind of talked about with Imagine by uh, John Lennon. But the fact that that was, you know, their first sort of really big, you know, number one hit song was just something as simple as I want to hold your hand. You know, and I, I think that's I think there's something really, really beautiful about that, not to get too sappy or anything. But again, I love that song. I love kind of what it's about and all of these things and what it meant for the Beatles. Obviously, I'm a huge Beatles fan and, and whatnot, but I still yeah. think there are some other songs on this list that probably should go higher than that song. I, I would have to agree. Uh so it says, in 1963, the Beatles gave themselves an ultimatum. Quote, we're not going to America till we've got a number one record, Paul McCartney declared. So he and John Lennon went to the home of the parents of Jane Asher, McCartney's girlfriend, where, quote, one-on-one, eyeball-to-eyeball, as Lennon later put it, they wrote, I want to hold your hand, an irresistibly erotic come-on framed as a chaste, bashful request. The lightning bolt energy of their collaboration ran through the band's performance. Rush released in America the day after Christmas, I Want to Hold Your Hand, hit number one in the States on February 1st, 1964. When the bandmates got the news in Paris during a three-week stand there, they partied all night. Nice. Nice. That's a nice backstory. Yeah. And that's, like I said, I, I think for, for them, it, it the song obviously meant a lot because, you know, even, you know, coming to America, we know how that, you know, went over. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Song number 14, Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. I'm familiar with The Kinks, not the title of this song. Yeah. Yeah. I feel the same way. Um, after the 1967, after the Kinks first burst, and that's, I like it honestly. And I know you're gonna, you know, as a music guy, you might be like, oh, that's can't believe that's what you think. When I first, like the within the first milliseconds of Kinks, I just think of that scene in Lost where Jin is like Kings, and Charlie's no Kink oh. with a kinka. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's, and I'm not saying anything, you know, that's not obviously anything about their music or anything like that, but that's just like. <laughs> yeah, that's a great reference. <laughs> and I can't talk with someone like you and not bring up Lost, of course. Oh, of course. Of course. <laughs> After the Kinks' first burst of British invasion pop success fizzled, Ray Davies really needed to write another hit, but instead he wrote Waterloo Sunset. It's a delicate guitar ballad about a solitary man who watches the world from his window, gazing on a couple of lovers who meet at a dismal London train station. That sounds like Bowie's song earlier. Yeah. Yeah. It's very similar. <laughs> the story. Yeah. Ex- except, you know, that description was a lot more Stefan-esque. But, um, you know, uh, still, it's, it is uh, very similar. 
Uh, it says, for Davies, it was so personal, he didn't even dare show the lyrics to the other kinks until he recorded his vocal. As he said, quote, it was like an extract from a diary nobody was allowed to read, unquote. Yet it became his most beloved creation. You'd never know from the song what a dump Waterloo Station is, a tribute to Davies' power to find beauty in the mundane. Wow. Okay. No, that's cool. Uh, it sounds like one I'm going to have to uh, take a listen. Yeah. Hey everyone, it's James, recurring guest on Paul and All. Just taking the time out here to let you know about a special bonus episode of Paul and All available right now on Content Club. In it, Paul and I discuss a failed pilot, How I Met Your Dad. We were prepared for How I Met Your Father. Yes, there are two different shows. This episode will never be released in the main feed, so go check it out right now at Content Club, only at patreon.com forward slash clockshelves. Thank you. All right, moving on to song number 13. Give Me Shelter by the Rolling Stones. Good song. No way it it beats a lot of these songs. <laughs> you know, I... I and, and and I know your thing with the Stones. I do. Um, I actually like this song though. It is. It's a good song. It is. I like that song too. But uh, I I I don't want to keep coming back to Bohemian Rhapsody as a as a as a focal point. But uh, well, the fact that it was so hot, like that, it was a lot higher on this list than I think either of us thought. I feel like we're yeah. gonna keep coming back to that. <laughs> Yeah, how is it not at least in the top ten? I'll never know, but um, yeah. But then again, I haven't heard the top ten yet, so we'll see how that goes. The Stones just give. I can't wait because I like I said I don't, and I said this in the previous one. I don't remember what it was, but I just remember going, "Wow, some of these are in the top 10. Uh The Stones channeled the emotional wreckage of the late 60s on a song that Keith Richards wrote in 20 minutes. The intro, strummed on an electric acoustic guitar modeled on a Chuck Berry favorite, conjures an unparalleled aura of dread. Singer Mary Clayton brings down Armageddon with a soul-racked wail, quote, rape, murder, it's just a shot away, unquote. The song surfaced days after Meredith Hunter's murder at the Altamont Music Festival. Quote, that's a kind of end of the world song, really, Mick Jagger said in 1995. It's apocalypse, unquote. Richards later said that his guitar fell apart on the last take as if by design. Fell apart. Wow. Okay. I, I, I don't know exactly what he means by that. Maybe he broke some strings. Maybe the neck fell off. Like, I, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I would love to, like, know what... I'd love to get more detail on that. Yeah, same, same. Sounds like an odd occurrence. Number 12. Superstition by Stevie Wonder. Okay, that's a great song. Um, is it top twelve? I no, <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think it is. Like uh, Stevie Wonder is, is, a, is a was a great musician. Like I, 
uh, is, wait, is he still alive? I, 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 I don't I know. Like I was I just about to like, ask you that. <laughs> I, I feel like I should know this, but I don't. Um, I, I'm fairly, oh gosh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, anyway, great musician, living or dead. Um, and that's a great song. Uh, it's spawned several cool covers as well. Uh, one by Stevie Ray Vaughan, which happens to be one of my favorite covers of that song. But, um, yeah, top 12, I'd, I'd have to say no. Yeah, I don't, I, 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 I don't think so. Not, yeah, that, not this high or low, depending on how you want to look, think about the list. Not, not at this spot on the list. Right, right. Agreed. Stevie Wonder debuted this hard blast of funk live while opening for the Rolling Stones in the summer of 1972, intent on expanding his audience. The 22-year-old former child star had written it at a drum set, humming the other parts to himself. Wonder had initially intended for Jeff Beck to record the song, but Barry Gordy wouldn't let him give it away. It became the first single from Talking Book uh, and Wonder's first number one hit in nearly a decade. Quote, a lot of people, especially black folks, let superstition rule their lives, Wonder said. This is crazy. The worst thing is, the more you believe in it, the more bad things happen to you, unquote. Makes sense. Makes sense. Lots of interesting description. And uh, wh while you were reading that, I looked it up. He actually is still alive. Uh, born in 1950, is 71 years old. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. Still still kicking. I wonder if that means he does or doesn't believe in superstition. Ah, oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I don't know. Number 11, God Only Knows by the Beach Boys. I love some Beach Boys tunes. Uh, Mike Love is awesome, but I, I, I can't say that I know that one. Oh, this is actually one of my personal favorite Beach Boys songs. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, then I, I definitely got to listen. So, what's your take? Um. Well, so I love the and there's a story, and I don't know if it's going to talk about it here, but um, one of the things with regards to this song is um. It's a love song, okay? I mean, like a lot of their early ones were, just like the Beatles and all of those bands sort of of that time. But there was basically kind of some pushback from, I don't remember if it was the record company or the radio stations or what have you, but the opening line of the song is, I may not always love you. And a lot of the, whoever was the, the pushback was from, they were like, we can't release a love song where the first line is, I may not always love you. But the actual <laughs> full thing is, I may not always love you, but as long as there are stars above you, you know, uh, and then it goes on to the, the world could show nothing to me. God only knows what I'd be without you. That's the, the basically the whole point of the song. And it, it gets very sort of deep into it. And like I said, personally, it is one of my favorite Beach Boys songs. But I just always love that whoever it was clearly couldn't think past those first few words to realize what the song is actually talking about. They were just yeah. like, oh, my goodness, we can't have a song that opens with the words. I may not always love you and not realize the fact that it's like, no, you idiot. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, really. It's just like they read the headline and thought they knew what the article was about. Like, yes. yeah, for sure. Um, 
uh, quote, it's very emotional, always a bit of a choker with me, said Paul McCartney uh, of this Pet Sounds ballad. The night McCartney and John Lennon first heard Pet Sounds at a London party, they wrote Here, There, and Everywhere, which is influenced by God Only Knows. Uh, Carl Wilson's understated lead vocal is note perfect, but it's the arrangement of horns, sleigh bells, strings, and accordion that gives, uh, well, it says God, just in quotes, because sometimes they'll shorten a song, its heavenly feel. Brian Wilson was fascinated by spirituality and said this song came out of a prayer session in the studio quote, we made it a religious ceremony. He said of recording pet sounds. The only problem, the use of the word God in the title scared off some radio programmers. Ah, okay. All right. Interesting story. Like I said, I, I, for whatever reason, some years back when I was really getting into, um, and I think I may have talked about this with you. If if not, I've, I've definitely shared the story somewhere. Like when I sort of went on, I think I might have said it to you with regards to Sgt. Pepper and how that was sort of where I developed my liking as a Beatles fan. I don't know if I did. I, did I tell you that story? Uh, Yeah, I believe so. I uh, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And how like I, I had I had heard them because, you know, my my dad would listen to them yeah. or whatever. But then that was Same. the first Same. the first album that i really sat and listened to and was like oh i am you know i could actually get into this band or whatever and at that point i i kind of over the years after that i obviously went on you know quite the musical journey to go through various things and when i started getting into the beach boys for whatever reason that song was one of the the ones that sort of stuck with me and i was just like i really like this song so like you said you don't think you've heard it i would definitely say go check it out like just yeah. as my personal recommendation fair enough all right number 10 the 10th greatest song of all time <laughs> gosh all right all right let's do it all right I want to clarify that I like this song, but I cannot believe it is considered the 10th greatest song of all time. 2003, Hey Ya by Outkast. <laughs> um, I I am not familiar with this song. Oh, wait. No, I am. Oh, no, you have I to am. be familiar I with this song. I, I know I am. I am. I am. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> not a, it, it took me a second. It took me a second. Um. Okay. Yeah. Shake it like a Polaroid pig. Yeah. No. No. I know that. Yeah. I was gonna I, say you. Yeah, <laughs> I should know this song. Um. I I like this song. Again, it's a fun song. Um. But top ten. I know, right? <laughs> I don't. I just. I, I can't see it. I can't see it. That I don't know. Uh, your thoughts? I remember when this song came out. Um, yeah. I remember, I remember cause I, I didn't really know outcast before I heard some of their stuff on the radio and they had, yeah. they had a, a quite a deep catalog before that. And obviously much like a lot of bands, the stuff that you don't hear on the radio is often better than the ones you do hear on the radio. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've never like gotten into them like a lot, but I remember just hearing this song. And I remember this song was everywhere, like everywhere. Oh, you couldn't escape sure. this song. 
And it's a fun, like, sort of, hey, well, one, it's nostalgic at this point, you know, because, like, for me, it reminds me of, like, middle school dances and things, you know. And so it's, it's a fun, like, let's get everybody sort of dancing and feeling it. And then of course, like you said, you get to the shake it like a Polaroid picture part. And everybody remembers that part. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Know? absolutely. And I think Polaroid, I don't remember if they had to, re- if they released a statement then or whatever, but I know at some point they ended up releasing a statement where it's like, contrary to the song, you are not actually supposed to shake the pictures. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but, I definitely not top 10 probably yeah. not even I wouldn't even say top 20 yeah I, I would agree I would agree uh let's see this one has three paragraphs what <laughs> all right <laughs> that, that's fair let's say what do we what do we have about as radical as fun can get hey ya is funk pop rap and rock spun into something otherworldly yet immediately lovable via outcasts one-of-a-kind stanconian vision <laughs> wow i wish i had visions like that andre 3000 what? began writing the song on acoustic guitar bashing out some chords that he wanted to sound like the smiths and the buzzcocks Quote, he had the bulk of it already conceptualized in his head, said recording engineer John Fry. It all happened quite fast. We recorded the skeleton part with the intro and the first verse and hook all in one night, unquote. That's paragraph one. Paragraph two. The song would end up going through numerous permutations. One key assist came from former cameo member Kevin Kendricks, who laid down the synth part and bass. At one point, it was called Thank God for Mom and Dad, a title that makes plain its complicated lyrics about the challenges of keeping a romantic relationship afloat. Paragraph 3. On Twitter in 2021, Outkast even called it, quote, the saddest song ever written, unquote. In 2003, however, most of that was lost on a world that simply wanted to dance, party, and shake it like a Polaroid picture. Hey Ya was the most universal pop smash of the early 2000s, the first song to be downloaded one million times on iTunes. Wow, that's quite an accomplishment. But is it the 10th greatest song of all time? No. no. <laughs> no. no. Saying, I didn't even finish the question. You're like, no. <laughs> no. No, it's not. <laughs> not. Not for me personally. Now, you might agree with number nine. Okay. Dreams by Fleetwood Mac. They they had so many great tunes. Um, big Stevie Nicks fan. Uh, I That was a great song. I don't, I don't know. Oh, gosh. I don't know. I, I, I kind of feel like it's Fleetwood Mac. I'm playing with fire here with my opinion. Um, but it's, gosh, I don't know. I don't think you could go wrong placing any Fleetwood Mac song on a top 10 list. True, 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 true. Um, only in comparison to some of the others that were on this list that were just straight cringe to me. I'm going to say yes. (laughs) Yes, that's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. 
Uh, absolutely. I love this opening sentence. In the face of a lover telling her to go her own way, Stevie Nicks penned the ethereal dreams. During the rumors sessions in Sausalito, California, Nicks spent an off day in another room of the record plant that was supposedly used by Sly and the Family Stone. Quote, it was a black and red room with a sunken pit in the middle where there was a piano and a big black velvet bed with Victorian drapes, she told Blender. There, she reflected on the thunder and rain of her relationship with uh, Lindsay Buckingham, whose guitar parts sliced through the song's mystical beat. Quote, I sat down on the bed with my keyboard in front of me, found a drum pattern, switched my little cassette player on, and wrote Dreams in about 10 minutes. Right away, I liked the fact that I was doing something with a dance beat because it made it a little unusual for me, unquote. The second single on Fleetwood Mac's blockbuster album Rumors, Dreams would become the band's only U.S. chart topper, and it would continue to enchant new generations and even return to the charts for decades to come. Wow. Yeah. No, that's really cool. That's I mean, cool. I, I've noticed I'm seeing a pattern here. Like, so, some of these great songs were, were written so quickly. It's like, oh, I wrote this in 10 minutes. I wrote this in, like, 15 minutes. Yeah. Like, uh, it's, I, I, I was asleep and I had a dream. I woke up, I wrote this song, then I passed back out. Like, <laughs> wow, that's that's just in, insane. It's like m- fleeting moments of genius. Well, I mean, they, they, they do say that, like, that's how it happens. The ones that you spend yeah. in a lot of times, maybe not this song yeah. in particular, but a lot of times where that those will be the ones where they're like, we didn't think it was going to be anything. We just wrote it so quick. We just needed to get one more song on the album or whatever. And then that becomes the biggest one. But yet the one that you spend all the time and energy on is just people are just like, oh, yeah, that that's cool. Yeah. yeah, you just you just catch that lightning in a bottle and you, you don't even know it at the time. So, yeah. Um, one of the things that I always think of and this this song is really the example of that. Um, when, you know, I used to see it as a meme a few years ago, and I feel like almost any time Taylor Swift comes out with a new album. People, yeah. you know, because obviously people want to see what, you know, what's her relationship drama this time? You know? oh, oh, God. And yeah. and they, yeah. they'd find, oh, well, this one is the one that describes my breakup and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And th- there was a meme going around a few years ago where it's like, don't try to be like Taylor Swift when it comes to, to breakup stuff. Be like Stevie Nicks, who wrote like a scathing song about her ex and then made him play on the song as she looked him in the eyes and sang it. (laughs) Nice. Nice. Yeah. I think, I think I saw that. Yeah. That's fantastic. That's a great point. Oh, and now we get to song number eight. Once again, people, these are the greatest songs of all time per Rolling Stone magazine. Hmm. Get Your Freak On by Missy Elliott. <laughs> what? I, I, uh, I like that song. It's got a great beat. But is it top ten of all time forever, ever, ever, ever on earth? Hell no. No way. <laughs> I don't know. What's your, what's your hot take on that? I... I only know this song because it was so overplayed on the radio. Yeah. 
you know, and it's fine. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to take anything. I mean, obviously, Missy Elliott yeah, has done more in, in her life than I probably oh, ever sure. will. But like, yeah, same. Same. yes, of course, it's yeah. it's OK. I, I there are many songs I would I would actually put Hey Ya above this song. <laughs> oh, yeah. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. I completely agree with that. Um, wow. Yeah, that's 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 kind of surprising or maybe it's kind of not. I don't know. Uh, you know, going over the previous ones, I've been surprised several times. But yeah, I, I number eight. That's that's interesting. Uh, the uh, quote. Oh, yeah, man. We was on some futuristic stuff for sure. Missy Elliott told Rolling Stone in 2020 on her musical chemistry with Timbaland. It was something hypnotic about those records, unquote. Missy and Tim took over the radio in the late 90s. Just two kids out of... Okay, you're from near there-ish, so you would know better than me. Is it Portsmouth or Portsmouth, Virginia? Uh, Portsmouth. Portsmouth, Virginia. Virginia. Uh, Blowing minds with their own unique space funk sound. She didn't obey any of the rules for female stars at the time, and her music didn't obey rules either. Nobody could duplicate the Missy Tim mojo. Get your freak on. Also, people, let's not forget your is spelled capital U lowercase r. That's your, because we're, we're too short on time. We're in the future. We're futuristic <laughs> space funk, whatever, but we don't have time to write out the word your. Get Your Freak On is the peak of their long-running collaboration, a massively weird avant-garde experiment that also blew up into a global pop hit. Even by their standards, Get Your Freak On was a crazed challenge to the audience, with Missy yelling, Holla! over a warped bongra? B-H-A-N-G-R-A? Loop. Bongra? Loop. Bongra. As she she once recalled, quote, I was like, Tim, you sure this isn't too far left that people won't get it? It sounds like some Japanese stuff mixed with a hip hop beat, unquote. But everybody who heard it was hooked. The whole world wanted to holla along with with Miss E. Get Your Freak On remains an anthem for freaks everywhere. And even after 20 years, it still sounds like the future. It is a good song. I I do enjoy it. I it is not number eight for me. <laughs> that's actually that sums it up perfectly. That's yeah. what it should have said in the little thing. <laughs> right, right. That's it. Uh, number seven, "Strawberry Fields Forever" by the Beatles. Beatles. Okay. Um. It's. I I do love that song. Um. You know, and, and I, I'm seeing a pattern here. The, the further we go down, the 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 more I'm recognizing these songs. Thankfully, <laughs> um, the more I enjoy them. Um, number seven. I I don't know. These these are really getting harder to um, say whether they should be in this slot or not, because it really, you know, these these are such uh, I feel great songs that it really makes you think about all the ones before it. Uh, I feel like uh, the the ones previously were a little easier to throw away. 
or or decide that you know it, yeah i like the slot where they've put it um well these top 10 well except for missy elliott uh it's it's tough it's tough to say whether that should be on there or not i that's a tough one for me i don't know what's your take for the band the beatles strawberry fields forever definitely marked a turning point um the way that they would do stuff was whatever the single was it normally wouldn't be on the record yeah um and i believe if i'm not mistaken that this was done during the same period as uh the sergeant pepper album which of course was a huge turning point for the band overall you know got a lot more like psychedelic you know avant-garde whatever you want to say into into some of their later stuff so this definitely kind of let people know this is sort of the sound we're going for going forward at least um it's always just kind of this song in particular has always just kind of been there for me yeah. it comes on i'm like singing along and and whatever but if i'm gonna put on beatles songs which i mean yeah. obviously i have days where like that's what i want to listen to is beatles songs yeah. it's not one of the first ones that i go for interesting okay um John Lennon was one of the world's most visible people in 1966, but when he wrote his most exquisitely lonely song with Strawberry Fields Forever, it opened up a whole new psychedelic era for the Beatles, changing the way pop music was heard and made. But it began with Lennon alone on a Spanish beach with an acoustic guitar writing a song about his painful childhood memories. Strawberry Field was the name of a Liverpool orphanage where he used to play, and hide from the world as a boy. Quote, I have visions of strawberry fields, he told Rolling Stone in 1968. Excuse me, because strawberry fields is anywhere you want to go, unquote. Lennon bared himself so vulnerably in this song that he was nervous about playing it for the other Beatles. There was a moment of silence until Paul McCartney said, quote, that is absolutely brilliant, unquote. They turned it into a groundbreaking sonic collage thanks to George Martin's studio wizardry. It was the first song cut at the Sgt. Pepper sessions, though it got left off the album so it could come out as a February 1967 single, with McCartney's Penny Lane on the flip side. Strawberry Fields is a song full of raw pain, yet the Beatles made it feel like an irresistible invitation. Wow. That, that's a great description. Yes. I feel like I'm learning so much more about these songs that that I've, you know, heard since my childhood yet never knew any of this. So, yeah, this is really interesting. Number 6. Mm. What's going on by Marvin Gaye? I certainly know who Marvin Gaye is. I don't recognize the song from the title same hmm uh let's see what's going on is an exquisite plea for peace on earth sung by a man at the height of crisis in 1970 marvin gay was motown's top male vocal star yet he was frustrated by the assembly line role he played on his own hits devastated by the loss of duet partner tammy 
I don't know if it's Terrell or Terrell, uh, who died that March after a three-year battle with a brain tumor. Gay was also trapped in a turbulent marriage to Anna Gordy, Motown boss Barry Gordy's sister. Gay was tormented, too, by his relationship with his puritanical father, Marvin Sr. Quote, If I was arguing for peace, Gay told biographer David Ritz, I knew I'd have to find peace in my heart, unquote. Long oh. after Terrell's, Terrell's oh. passing, Ronaldo Benson of the Four Tops presented Gay with a song he had written with Motown staffer Al Cleveland, but Gay made the song his own, overseeing the arrangement and investing the topical references to war and racial strife with private anguish. Motown session crew The Funk Brothers cut the stunning jazz-inflected rhythm track Gay joined in with cardboard box percussion. Then Gay invoked his own family in moving prayer, singing to his younger brother Frankie, a Vietnam veteran, quote, brother, 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 there's far too many of you dying, unquote, and appealing for calm closer to home, quote, father, 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 we don't need to escalate, unquote. Initially rejected as uncommercial and of course my page freaking reloads i hate this stupid rolling stone website um sorry i gotta say even with all of that even reading those few lyrics i still didn't know it um initially rejected as uncommercial what's going on with background vocals by two players from the detroit lions was gay's finest studio achievement a timeless gift of healing Wow, that's, that's really heavy. Uh, it sounds like there was a, a, a lot going on. Um, wow, yeah, I'm going to have to actually give that a listen. Yes. For sure. I don't know if I told you this, but when we, were, when, uh, when we went out to L.A. for the Lost concert. Right. Um. I had just, and it just so happened that it was like right before that trip, I was just randomly listening to something. And I think it was, I think it was the original Drake song. And then like other people did, you know, like in the hip hop community did like things over where he did that song Marvin's room where basically he recorded like a whole thing in like, I guess Marvin Gaye's like studio or something like that. That's why it's called Marvin's room. And I just yeah. happened to look and I was like, you know, that like, cause sometimes I'll look and I, it didn't, it didn't click exactly because like the title had nothing really to do with the song. Yeah. So I was like, what is this? And I found out that it was the studio in like in LA. And then I was trying to like find information on it and there wasn't much, but I was able to find that like where it was and I got the address and it was actually like just a few blocks away from where we were staying right off of um, sunset Boulevard. And yeah. so the one day Jake and Bree and I took a quick walk and if there's nothing outside that would indicate like, this is Marvin Gaye studio or, you know, like <laughs> anything like that. And it was like, there was like bars all over the thing or whatever, but I took a few quick pictures outside and whatever to be like, this is it. Like whatever. But yeah. Yeah. Just one of those, like, cool, to me at least, one of those just, like, cool little things of just, hey, musical history happened here. Yeah, for sure. And the fact that it wasn't, like, labeled as, like, anything was kind of weird to me, you know? 
Yeah, yeah. You'd think there'd be some kind of indication. Well, because we walked past it like two or three times. <laughs> oh, wow, okay. Like, that's yeah. how inconspicuous it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nuts. All right, number five. Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana. I love Nirvana. I I will not deny how music I think pivoted when when that came out. Uh, the song itself, I I don't feel like musically it belongs in the top five, but the impact it had on music itself uh when that single dropped i i feel i could place it there so i'm kind of really torn between a yes or a no on this one well is this this is sort of for you like the way you're describing it it sounds kind of like the uh the elton john discussion we had last time where it's like there are better songs by him but this is arguably the most popular one (laughs) yeah and i kind of feel like that's what we're well, it's, it's what it's being based off of. So, um, like I, one of my favorite Nirvana songs is negative creep. And, and a lot of people initially didn't even know about that album when this dropped. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely feel they have better songs. This is a good one, but, um, I, I don't think it belongs on the top five culturally. Yeah, sure. You know, um, they kind of spirit. I mean, there were there were other grunge bands before them, just wasn't as prominent. Um, you know, I, I kind of feel like they more brought it to the masses. So culturally, yeah, sure, okay. It's kind of five. ironic, isn't it, that they yeah. brought grunge to the mainstream? Almost. Yeah, right. It's just like it's a it's two opposing ideas. It's like alternative, but it's you know at the same time, it's like what's wildly popular. So yeah, what what's your thought? I've never, I don't have anything against Nirvana, but I've never yeah. really been that big into Nirvana. They're, yeah. They're, I, and like you said, from a standpoint of them and what this song specifically did and sort of the, the, whether you want to say the uprising of grunge or, you know, bringing it to the mainstream yeah. or, or what yeah. have you, this song definitely did it. You know, and this is like you said, music pivoted at this point. And this is for a lot of people, because I think this is sort of what the the I don't even want to say necessarily the late 80s, but the early 90s was about. It was just as much as the 60s was like that musical counterculture sexual revolution. I feel like the 90s did a lot of that, too. And this is one of those points where you can say it may not have started started here, but this is one of like the building blocks to it was this song and that grunge movement and all of that becoming more and more popular in the mainstream, which again is there is an irony to that. But for for that reason, I think that, again, maybe not top five, definitely top ten just yeah, for yeah, the for impact sure. of this song. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. They 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 kicked it off. There was so many. Man, that 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 was the for me. That was a great era. Producer 
Butch Vig first heard Smells Like Teen Spirit in early 1991 on a boombox cassette recorded by bassist Christ Novoselic, yep. What is Novoselic? Okay, thank you. Novoselic, yeah. Uh, it is Christ, is that right? Yes. Okay. Uh, drummer Dave Grohl and singer-guitarist-songwriter Kurt Cobain in a barn in Tacoma, Washington. The fidelity was abysmal. Vig, about to work with Nirvana on their major label debut, Nevermind, could not tell that the song would soon make underground Seattle rock the new mainstream and catapult Cobain, a troubled young man with strict indie culture ethics, into mega-celebrity. Quote, I could sort of hear the hello, hello part and the chords, Vig said years later, but it was so indecipherable that I had no idea what to expect, unquote. Teen Spirit was Cobain's attempt to, quote, write the ultimate pop song, he said, using the soft, loud dynamic of his favorite band, the Pixies. The insidious hooks also showed his admiration for John Lennon, Cobain, quote, had that dichotomy of punk rage and alienation, Vig said, but also this vulnerable pop sensibility. In teen spirit, a lot of that vulnerability is in the tone of his voice, unquote. Sadly, by the time of Nirvana's last U.S. tour in late 1993, Cobain was tortured by the obligation to play teen spirit every night. Quote, there are many other songs that I have written that are as good, if not better, he claimed. Uh, but few songs of any artist have reshaped rock and roll so immediately and permanently. So true. That's true. One of my favorite things about recording any of the shows that I do, like MCU and Me or Lost with Friends or even back when we used to do Wrestling Renegades, is finding out little uh, details about the people that we have on. Uh, and sometimes in the middle of those conversations, you get some very interesting details about who the people are. And of course, we try to present you with who those people are across the various Clock Shelves Entertainment shows. And one of the best ways that we do that is on our show, Paul and All. Um, it is where I sit down uh, with various people from all over the world, as I always say, and I just talk with them. And I, the, you know, no topic is too small on our show, Paul and all, as our intro says. And I would love if you would go and check it out, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, of course, you could find the links across all of our social media. And, you know, you could help us grow that show as well, because sometimes it's fun talking with the Losties or the True Believers uh, about things that aren't necessarily Lost or Marvel or wrestling or what have you. Um, sometimes getting to know the people is what is the fun part for me. I am Paul. I am your voice of choice here at Clock Shelves Entertainment, and I host Paul and All. Go check it out. Number four, Bob Dylan, like a Rolling Stone. I, uh, you know, of course, Dylan's a fantastic songwriter. Um, I and while I've heard a lot of his songs, I, I've heard the name of this. I've heard the name of this song a million times. I can't say that I remember it. 
Oh, I'm sure if you, I can't think, I, I'm sure if you heard it, you'd, you'd I'm know sure. It. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, quote, I wrote it. I didn't fail. It was straight. Bob Dylan said of his greatest song shortly after he recorded it in June, 1965. There is no better description of like a rolling stone of its revolutionary design and execution or of the young man just turned 24 who created it. Dylan began writing an extended piece of verse, 20 pages long by one account, six in another, that was, he said, quote, just a rhythm thing on paper all about my steady hatred directed at some point that was honest, unquote. Back home in Woodstock, New York, over three days in early June, Dylan sharpened the sprawl down to that confrontational chorus and four taut verses bursting with piercing metaphor and concise truth. Before going into Columbia Records' New York studios to cut it, Dylan summoned Mike Bloomfield, the guitarist in the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, to Woodstock to learn the song. Quote, he said, I don't want you to play any of that B.B. King shit, none of that fucking blues, recalled Bloomfield, who died in 1981. I want you to play something else, unquote. Just as Dylan bent folk music's roots and forms to, uh, yeah, forms to his own will, he transformed popular song with the content and ambition of Like a Rolling Stone. And in his electrifying vocal performance, his best on record, Dylan proved that everything he did was first and always rock and roll. Uh, rolling Stone is the best song I wrote. He said flatly at the end of 1965, it still is. That's the wow. article saying it still is, not him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I have to give that a listen. Number three, A Change is Gonna Come by Sam Cooke. I love Sam Cooke. Um... I feel he had better songs though. Um so no, for 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 me not not number 3. I'm glad he's I I'm glad he's recognized. He was he was an incredible singer. Um but uh number 3, no, nah, I don't I don't think that does it for me. What what do you think? Yeah, I I got to say like the so let's just very quickly let's all let's once again Nirvana number 5. Five, top five greatest songs of all time. Yeah. Smells Like Teen Spirit, number five. Like a Rolling Stone, number four. And now A Change is Gonna Come at number three. I yeah. I, I, I don't understand this list, man. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I agree. I agree. I, I, I think... They've beat us down with so many not so great songs that anything decent to really good, maybe not excellent, that comes along is just like, oh, okay, sure, it belongs there, you know. Um, but yeah, with this one, I, I kind of feel like uh, Sam Cooke had other songs that me personally I like better, although this one wasn't bad, of course. I think we're just getting into now, I like with this, like like even realistically. So the last three, this one, the Bob Dylan one, and the and their Nirvana one, yeah. it's just, you know, the super popular artists 
and then put their most popular songs yeah, exactly in yeah. the top like what 20 or whatever you know bohemian rhapsody queen imagine john lennon you know what i mean uh obviously teen spirit by nirvana you know what i mean things like that i think that's what it comes down to not that it's yeah. their greatest song but right. just what's their most popular one and we'll put that in the top 20 or whatever right no yeah that that sounds sounds right yeah uh, in 1963, Sam Cooke, America's first great soul singer and one of the most successful pop acts in the nation, with 18 top 30 hits since 1957, heard a song that profoundly inspired and disturbed him. Bob Dylan's Blowin' in the Wind. What struck Cooke was the challenge implicit in Dylan's anthem. Geez, Cooke mused, a white boy writing a song like that? <laughs> Cook's response, A Change Is Gonna Come, recorded on January 30th, 1964, with a sumptuous orchestral arrangement by Renee Hall, was more personal in its first-person language and the experiences that preceded its creation. On October 8th, 1963, while on tour, Cook and members of his entourage were arrested in Shreveport, Louisiana, for disturbing the peace after they tried to register at a white motel, an incident reflected in the song's third verse. And Cook's mourning for his 18-month-old son, Vincent, who drowned that June, resonates in the last verse, quote, There have been times that I thought I couldn't last for long, unquote. On December 11th, 1964, almost a year after he recorded it, Cook was fatally shot at an L.A. motel. Two weeks later, A Change Is Gonna Come was released, becoming Cook's farewell address and an anthem of the civil rights movement. Wow. That's, okay. Huge cultural impact, yep. obviously. Yeah. So, yeah. Here we are, Mike. The top oh, two top greatest two. songs. I use greatest songs in major air quotes here. <laughs> Number two, 1989, Fight the Power by Public Enemy. Um, I don't know that song. I know Public Enemy. I, I feel like if I heard it, I would probably know it. Um, well, the fact that you don't offhand know you're, and you're quite the musical guy, which is why I wanted to talk about this with you. The fact yeah. that you don't know the second greatest song of all time. Doesn't that say something? Uh, maybe I'm not the musical guy. I thought That's I not what I'm trying uh, to imply. Yeah, no, I know, I know. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, uh, Public Enemy. I've, I've definitely heard several other songs. I just, uh, and I feel like, uh, again, this is one that I would know if I heard um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know it. I, I'm, I'm not sure. Chuck D once likened fight the power to Pete Seeger singing. We shall overcome quote fight the power. He said points to the legacy of the strengths of standing up in music. Unquote filmmaker Spike Lee had originally asked public enemy to write an anthem for do the right thing. A movie about confronting white supremacy. So Chuck and the group's producers, the Bomb Squad, took inspiration from the Isley Brothers' funky 
fight the power and use the title as a blueprint for a whole new war cry. In just under five minutes of scuzzy breakbeats and clarion call horn samples, Chuck D and his foil, Flavor Flav, that's me saying it, not the article, uh, present a manifesto for racial revolution and black pride with Cohen's like, quote, our freedom of speech is freedom of death, unquote, and rallying cries to rethink the basics of American life itself in lines like, quote, most of my heroes don't appear on no stamps, unquote. The song was exactly what Lee's movie needed, so it was played over and over again anytime the character character, sorry, the character, Radio Rahim showed up with his boombox, making it an instant classic. Quote, I think it was Public Enemies and Spike Lee's defining moment because it had awoken the black community to a revolution that was akin to the 60s revolution where you had Martin Luther King or Malcolm X, the bomb squad's Hank Shockley once said. It made the entire hip-hop community recognize its power. Then the real revolution began, unquote. Wow, okay, I can't take that away from it i you know it sounds like another one of those that's a huge cultural impact so i i can't say that it that it shouldn't be on there you okay on a list yes number two <laughs> right i know i know i know i know number two i i still can't because i i don't remember ever hearing the song like i i still can't comment on that but i yeah Probably not number two. Again, not taking away from the cultural impact. We're talking not at about. all. I'm not. I'm not trying to either. Just for the record, yeah. but <laughs> yeah, I I can't imagine it would be the second best song of all time. But um, yeah, ha- having not heard it, I I can't really say. Have you? Have you? heard it did you, you you haven't heard it right oh no i have i mean i've heard it oh, okay great. like in, but i don't i don't i don't well okay i like that song i like a few public enemy songs yeah. um one of the things because they were i don't want to say they were before my time but they were kind of before my time like just in terms of hip-hop but one of the things that kind of made me i don't want to say realize public enemy or whatever it was but when they did uh the Again, when I was just different musical things, whatever they did the the crossover song with, I want to say Anthrax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was one of the things where I was just like, "All right, I guess I do <clears throat> kind of like some Public Enemy stuff." Yeah, 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 for sure. Um. All right, the number one We've greatest made... song of all time. It's all been building to this. We started at number 50. Of course, their list started at number 500. But from 50 all the way down to number one. And I want you to find out what it means to me when I say that the number one song is R-E-S-P-E-C-T by Aretha Franklin. Um... The pause and then just because you are so <laughs> I I love Aretha Franklin. I photographed her before uh she had passed, so I actually heard her in person. I heard her 
seeing this in person, it was amazing. Um, man, what a great song, but number one of all time forever. Like I, I just can't say that it is. Yeah, no. I, I just you know no, I don't I don't think so. I don't think so. If it had been higher or lower, again, depending on how you want to look at a list, if yeah. it had been in the top like 20 along with some of the others or even top 25 or what have you with some of the others that we that we heard or yeah. that we, you know, talked about, I'd right. be like, yeah, all right. You know, like I get it. Yeah, for sure. But number one. Yeah. Beating I, out again. Yeah. Uh, And not saying that these are, that I think these are the greatest songs of all time, but beating out uh tiny dancer beating out uh uh bohemian rhapsody beating out anything by the beatles the stones the beach boys uh zeppelin <laughs> yeah you know what i mean like any yeah. of the it, it, number 1 beating out anything by little richard marvin gay uh you know even again we could go newer with the fact that public enemy which was kind yeah. of a, a, a yeah. like, wow, that kind of came out of nowhere, seemingly, in this this top list, you know? This yeah. is the number one greatest song of all time. Look, I'm just glad it's not Kanye West. So... Uh, if that's your standard, <laughs> that was your, that was your, your bar? <laughs> uh, no, it's a great song. Like, it really is. And she is one of the most amazing singers, uh, you know, that's ever stepped in front of a microphone. But I, I can't say that. Yeah. I, I, I can't say that it's it's number one for me personally. It's a lot more than just the singer. Right. It's I mean, the lyrics are great, too, but it's you know, it's the groove. It's the chord changes. It's I, I don't want to say complexity because complexity doesn't make a, a song good or bad, but. Um, you know, just, I, as a total package, no, I, I can't see it as, as number one. No, definitely a high ranking song. Like I said, top sure. 20 maybe, but yeah. All right. When Aretha Franklin left Columbia records for Atlantic in 1966, the label's vice president, Jerry Wexler came to the singer with some suggestions for songs she might cover like Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come and Ray Charles' Drown In My Own Tears. She liked those ideas, but she had one of her own, Respect, a song she'd been performing live. Long as she, quote, sorry, quote, long as she changes it up, Wexler told Franklin's manager Ted White in an exchange recounted by Franklin's biographer David Ritz. Quote, you don't gotta worry about that, White responded. She changes it up all right, unquote. Otis Redding wrote Respect and recorded it for the Stax Volt label in 1965, but Franklin took possession of the song for all time with her definitive cover cut at Atlantic's New York studio on Valentine's Day 1967. Respect was her first number one hit and the single that established her as the Queen of Soul. In Redding's reading, A Brawny March, he called for equal favor with volcanic force. Franklin wasn't asking for anything. She sang from higher ground. A woman calling for an end 
to the exhaustion and sacrifice of a raw deal with scorching sexual authority. In short, if you want some, you will earn it. Quote, For Otis, respect had the traditional connotation, the more abstract meaning of esteem, unquote. Uh, Wexler said in his biography, Rhythm and the Blues, uh, colon, A Life in American Music, quote, the fervor in Aretha's magnificent voice demanded that respect demanded that respect and more. Respect also involved sexual attention of the highest order. What else could socket to me mean? Unquote. He was referring to the knockout sound of Franklin's backup singers, her sisters Carolyn and Irma, chanting socket to me at high speed, which Aretha and Carolyn cooked up for the session. The late Tom Dowd, who engineered the date, credited Carolyn with the saucy breakdown in which Aretha uh, spelled out the title, quote, I fell off my chair when I heard that, unquote. And since Redding's version had no bridge, Wexler had the band, the legendary studio crew from Muscle Shoals, Alabama, play the chord changes from Sam and Dave's When Something Is Wrong With My Baby under King Curtis's tenor sax solo. There is no mistaking the passion inside the discipline of Franklin's delivery. She was surely drawing on her own tumultuous marriage at the time for inspiration. Quote, if she didn't live it, Wexler said, she couldn't give it, unquote. But he added, quote, Aretha would never play the part of, uh, sorry, Aretha would never play the part of the scorned woman. Her middle name was Respect, unquote. Leading off her Atlantic debut, I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You, Respect catalyzed rock and roll, gospel, and blues to create the model for soul music that artists still look to today. Mariah Carey called Franklin my mentor. Just as important, the song's unapologetic demands resonated powerfully with the civil rights movement and emergent feminist revolution fitting for an artist who donated to the Black Panther Party and sang at the funeral of Martin Luther King Jr. In her 1999 memoir, Franklin wrote that the song reflected, quote, the need of the average man and woman in the street, the businessman, the mother, the fireman, the teacher, everyone wanted respect, unquote. And then it tops it off with, we still do. Wow. That's fantastic. That Again, is fantastic. That is a great write-up. It does not justify the song yeah. being at number one. Right. I, I don't agree. care how wordy they make it. I don't care how much <laughs> they put in there to, to try to sway you into being like, yeah, you know what? It is It is a fantastic song, and it it is sung beautifully. It is, like they said, forever hers. It is, you know, that nobody will ever say. You know, there are songs where it's like, like the one, uh, I think we covered it, previously uh jimmy hendrix did the cover of all along the watchtower and oh, yeah. not a lot of people remember that was a bob dylan song because that song is jimmy hendrix's now and even yep. bob dylan when he went back and did it was like i kind of like the version he did better and i'm gonna maybe incorporate some of that and this is the same thing that song is aretha franklin's i still do not believe in my heart that is, is the number one greatest song of all time yeah i'd have to agree I definitely have to agree. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry that we may have ended it on a down note or that I'm kind of being <laughs> negative about it for everyone, but I just. Oh, no, no. 
I, I think it was good. We we ended on, you know, is is it our number one song? No, but did we end on a great song? Absolutely. So I, you know, uh, it is what it is, you know. Also, the fact that a lot of those were the well between the last episode and this episode, the top fifty. I don't think there was any Led Zeppelin in the top fifty. Yeah. Right. There wasn't any Eminem in the top 50. I think do- there was Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg, though. Right, yeah. You know? Um, there wasn't any... I'm trying to think of who else would be, like, in my opinion, influential enough that should be in the top 50, at least. Aerosmith, possibly? Any classic Aerosmith? Aerosmith? Eric Clapton kind of comes to mind as well. Like, right, you right. know? Um... Okay, and now I'm going to say one, and I'm not the biggest fan, but I do recognize their popularity. And I will, actually, one of the songs I played in my Car Jams list on the way home is is them. Van Halen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. They had a lot of great tunes. But none in the top 50. <laughs> none in the top 50. I love the first few albums. Um, but yeah, none of them. So that's a, It's a weird list. I, I, I do, yeah. Yeah, it is it is a weird list to me. I don't know. But I agree. All right, so it wasn't our list. It is, I hesitate to even call it the definitive list, honestly, even if it is by Rolling Stone magazine. All right. <laughs> uh, and, and obviously all music is subjective. In no matter what you like or don't like, you know, and and we kind of talked about that over the course of these two episodes. And just like any other art in any form, be it paintings, films, music, anything, graffiti, you know, of course, that's that's a big controversial one. A lot of people for sure, you know, whatever Um, music is subjective. And obviously that list, as I believe I read in the uh, the first part was cultivated from like either a couple hundred or a couple thousand different people from journalists to musical artists themselves to producers and all sorts of people, you know, whatever to, to make that list. So there's a lot of subjectivity there. And even between the two of us, there were ones that Mike knew and I didn't and vice versa and what have you. But so who's to say, what is the greatest song or even the 500 greatest songs of all time. I think there were some tremendous songs on that list. And obviously, as we kind of said, rearrange uh, some of the, the orderings perhaps. Um, But yeah, I thought, I mean, obviously it led to a great conversation. I'm really glad that we got to uh, sit down and do this because like I said, one of the reasons that I that I set this aside and was like, oh, Mike has to be the guy because you not only are a music guy, but I know some of these, like you even said, Aretha Franklin, like you've you've met some of them and you've I know you've been to a lot of live performances and things like that. And, you know, hearing things, I'm not saying you've heard more music or less music than me, but just the yeah. fact that there is the age difference between us. So you heard certain things at a different point in your life than when I heard it, when, you know, right. when it originally came out or, or what have you. So 
I, I just knew that this had to be a conversation that you and I had. And I am so glad we finally got to, uh, I mean, it took us two episodes, but I'm glad we got to finally sit down and, and talk about the, what ended, well, we ended up of course covering the 50 greatest, uh, songs of all time. Yeah, it was fun. It's fun list to do. So if anyone out there would like to let, uh, us, you, us, whatever, know, uh, opinions on anything we said with regards to songs or send songs or say, Hey, what about this song or what have you, where can they find you Mike all across the internet? Uh, yeah, on, I'm on Instagram. I put a lot of my photography on there, obviously. So it's Michael Gilman dot photography. Um, I'm on Twitter, uh, at the, the exif files. That's, um, E X I F. F I L E S. Um, and just on Facebook, my Michael Gilman, you can find me on Facebook as well. I am on Twitter and Instagram at JPGRB. Uh, Mike is a photographer. I am a photographer, as I've said a few <laughs> times. Um, if you want to look at really good photography, you check out him. If you want to see goofy shots where I take a picture of like my laundry or something, you can follow my second Instagram at jpcs.pics. You can find more clock shelves related stuff, including uh, other things where Mike has been on past polynols. We actually did a show lost with friends that Mike was the very first guest and one of the very last guests on when we did the entire series proper. Um, And you can find more information about all of that on clockshelves.com or on social media. It's uh, at clockshelves on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That's C L O C K S H E L V E S. Of course, you could have gotten this episode early and uninterrupted if you're a member of Content Club, which is our newly rebranded Patreon, still available at patreon.com slash clockshelves. Once again, C L O C K S H E L V E S. And I think that's everything I have to plug at the end of these. That list just keeps getting longer and longer. Jeez. Um, <laughs> Mike, is there anything else you want to say about whether it be music overall or the, this, this list of the greatest songs of all time or anything else before we get out of here? Um, no, other than I, I hope, uh, I know it's early in the year. I hope everyone's had a great year so far. I very much agree. We will have to catch up. I know Mike, we did some episodes during the course of COVID, um, you know, and, and different quarantines in you know, your area and my area and so on and so forth about different photography and all sorts of stuff like that. We'll have to, we'll have to sit down and have like another chat about sort of what you've been doing lately. I feel like we'll have to do that. Yeah, sometime, we'll, so. we'll have to figure out our next deep dive for sure. Yes. But until then, uh, we hope you all had fun going through this list with us. I know we had fun sort of debating some of these songs back and forth. Like I said, we just gave out the socials. Let us know perhaps your greatest song of all time or if you would rearrange any of those. Or if you just happen to go through this list and see something random at song number, you know, 483 and you're like, that song is the 483rd greatest song that we would love. I would love to, to hear what people randomly think about random numbers of the, of the, the 
list. So let us know all of that. But for now, he is Mike, I am Paul, and that is all.